I don't think this framework necessarily applies to decision making, but it's really important. Like when we started Magic K twelve, Jeff Jeff Ralston, I mentioned this in the beginning. He said to me, "Talk to customers a lot." And I I don't know if he told me this or like I kind of extrapolated this framework, but talk to customers, um, solve a problem, and build a simple product to solve that problem, and just rinse and repeat. And it's so simple, but like that is what we run our. That's our. If there was, if you stripped away everything we've learned over the last fifteen years, all the frameworks and customers and growth and employees, yada yada. Like that's really at the core of what we do. Like we try to make things really simple and we know that they're simple because we understand the problem because we talk to customers. That's it. Hello again, my friends, and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen, and this podcast is how I excuse my procrastination. This show explores technology, investing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth in ways that will help you and the rest of humanity create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my guest is a true mensch named Brett Koff. He's the founder of Remind, a platform for communication and learning that reaches students and families wherever they are. Almost all of the teachers in the United States, about 80% use Remind. They have tens of millions of users. It's a truly remarkable company. It's basically like Slack for schools. They have investors like Naval Ravikant, Chamath Palihapitiya, and John Doerr, and well over a billion dollar valuation. I'm lucky to call Brett a very good friend. I've known him since college, and I remember the day he started Remind. He was still a sophomore at Michigan State. Now, more than 10 years later, Remind is a successful company and Brett has stepped away as the CEO, but he's back at it again, co-founding Omela, a payment platform for organizations. They're a very mission-driven company and they're designed to support local organizations like PTAs, schools, clubs, sports teams, and more. You're going to learn a ton about it in this episode. I'm proud to say I'm an investor personally in Omela. And that's a disclosure I want to make to you clearly as well. I have some skin in the game. Obviously, I'd love for Brett and Omela to continue to be successful, but I hope you know and trust by now that I would never promote something that I didn't believe in. So it, please enjoy this conversation. It focuses on his incredible skill in customer development. I think Brett is one of the best in the world at this. What he learned starting and scaling Remind and the frameworks that he's using now as he builds his next company. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in about 120 seconds. For the past few months, I have been absolutely binging the Founders podcast. David Senra, the host, is a biography reading machine. He has read hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies from all across history. And this podcast is a solo cast of him talking through his notes, quotes, and key insights from each book. If you listen to any of my solo casts, they're inspired exactly by David's format. My favorite aspect is the skill he has and the memory he has to connect stories between people like Andrew Carnegie, Lucille Ball, and George Lucas. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge. And if you don't have time to spend 40 hours reading every new biography that comes out that Isaacson, you know, the, the skyscraper thousand page biography that Isaacson writes, David's high quality recaps in one to two hours are incredible 80-20 way to learn. It's a paid podcast. And you can get access to the whole back catalog, hundreds of episodes for $299 or get all the new episodes for $99 a year. I've listened to dozens of episodes. I can't recommend them highly enough. 
there's this is something learning from biographies is something Charlie Munger and Mark Andreessen both recommend. It's something I love to do. And David has given us a much easier way to do it. If you're interested in learning more, go to founderspodcast.com to learn more and sign up. Uh, you can also listen to 30 minute sample episodes or purchase the paid feed through most podcast readers or search the Founders Podcast in your listener. And it's the white script on the black background. Founderspodcast.com. The link is in the show notes. Thank you so much for supporting the sponsors who help make this show possible. Another way to support the show, have some fun and be a part of the action is to invest alongside me and my partners in startups and early stage tech companies. I started an early stage investment fund this year called Rolling Fun with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've all been angel investing for years and managed to find a few billion dollar companies along the way. This year we started a fund which lets us invest your money alongside ours in the next batch of companies. We'll be investing in the most promising early stage opportunities we can find around the world. Before we started this fund, I actually personally invested in Omelo, like I mentioned in this episode. I think you'll hear why Brett's an incredibly compelling founder with a great opportunity and insight on the market. If you love exposure to companies like Omelo, you can learn more by listening to the podcast episodes with Bo and Al. Uh, you'll hear more about Rolling Fund there, updates on the portfolio, how we came together, what we look for in companies. We're taking on investors now. I'm honored that many readers and listeners have already joined the fund as co-investors. You can go to rolling.fun, which is linked in the show notes, and learn more. Accredited investors can join with us through AngelList today. If you have questions or would like to hear more, please reach out to me. I'd love to meet with you. Now, on with the show. It is ex incredibly exciting to have a, a longtime and true friend on the podcast who is also an incredible founder and mensch. And I'm very excited to have you here, Brett. Thanks for taking the time. Happy to be here. I'm hoping to learn a few more beautiful Yiddish words from you through this adventure. I'm happy to do that. And funny enough, the word mensch, for my second company, I thought about trying to get that URL. But the problem with it was that it's very hard to spell. Most people don't want know what it actually means. And I'm sure it's very expensive, the URL. So I didn't do it. I, do you know, I feel like that's a common thing. Most people don't know what it means. Mensch? It kind of depends if you run in like Jewish or Yiddish circles or if you grew up in New York. If you grew up in New York, you probably know what it uh, Okay. I feel like I picked it up from the, the comedy circuit. So that maybe that is not as mainstream as I as I would expect it to be. Yeah, it's a really it's a really good word. Like in Yiddish mensch basically means like a gentleman, or arguably you could use it for a woman too, as but it means like a really nice person, a good quality person. That's what the meaning of it is. So I appreciate that you called it. Yeah. That. It's it's good that we have like I don't know. I'm fascinated by languages that we have specific words for things, but like there's no analog for that in English that I know of that is just like a full bodied word for a whole bunch of good intentions about the inherent quality of a person. Like that feels like an important concept to have a word for. Yeah, we need one. I, I'm not going to take that on, but it would be great if we did. We'll just use mensch. That's great. We can borrow. We can borrow. So if, if, if Yiddish words are one theme of this podcast, the other I, I think will be what I think is the thing that you are best in the world at and the best that I have ever met uh, or anyone that I know of at really engaging customers to build products that solve their problems. I think there's a lot of talk about that conceptually, but I don't know anyone who walks it better than you. And I'm very excited to kind of dig in because I feel like that's the skill and the insight at the core of both of the companies that you founded. And it, it'll be a great kind of skill to bring us through your story and take away for people who are trying to solve any customer's problem, which should be pretty much anybody. 
Yep. That sounds great. Uh, and I appreciate that. I'm curious where that started. Like what, what is the earliest memory you have of being like, oh, this is what my job is. This is how I should be doing. This is how, what my work is. Well, if you go in the way, way back machine and you ask my mom, who's a therapist, she would say that it started when I was in fifth grade and I was diagnosed with all these learning disabilities. And I know that sounds kind of like, how would you correlate fifth grade learning disability to now I'm 35 and I have two companies, yada, yada. Um, but the reason is because I really struggled in school. Why are you laughing? Because we're already on the scoreboard, yada, yada. Oh, I don't think that's actually, <laughs> actually Yiddish work. Is it? Oh, all it, right, all right, all right. But, but I really struggled in school and emotionally, I didn't feel very smart because of that. And when you don't feel smart, you have low self-esteem. I don't have low self-esteem now. I'm very happy with who I am and who I'm not. But for a long time, I did. Even when I met you in college, I think we met freshman year, which was like in 2003 or something. And that's because I didn't feel like I had a place and I didn't feel like I was good at anything because I was stuck in the system of education that served the 99%. Not to say that I'm special on the 1%, but I just learned in a very different way. And so I think the natural curiosity to try to solve a problem came from wanting to so badly solve my problem. And then I, then, so that was like the emotional undercurrent. Then I, in 2011, moved to Silicon Valley, got into a startup incubator, which I'm happy to talk about. And they taught me sort of like the quote, business fundamentals, fundamentals of how to build a product from scratch and how to identify a problem. And then and then I just went crazy with it in a good way. Like I just talked to hundreds of customers because I love it. I am like extremely obsessed and passionate about it. And I should bookmark and say that this is my way of doing it, customer development and identifying a problem. It's very bottoms up. It's very grassroots. It's very hand-to-hand combat. And there's multiple ways to do it. That's just the way I do it. So back to your initial question, I think it came from a deep pain that I had, which I have turned now into a positive. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a... School does a lot of us a, a disservice in that way because it's it is so obvious in adult like working life how many different kinds of smart there are and and all the different skills and nuances and abilities that everybody on a team has and that you need people with all different kinds of skills. But when you're all sitting in a classroom absorbing the same thing and expected to produce the same output, it produces this very like one dimensional like force ranked view of the world that we spent our first like 20 years in mm-hmm. and then you know sometimes even five ten years into your working life you're like oh my god like there's visual talents and vocal like auditory talents and people who can only learn by like through conversation and engagement and people who are great with people and people who are analytical and people who aren't and people who are organized and people who aren't and that that's not there's so many more dimensions to it and just finding ways to kind of put people in their natural element and use let them discover their own strengths and apply them is so important. Yeah, I agree. You know, a lot of times when I interview candidates, whether at my last company or this one, they have this stacked resume, Harvard, Stanford, MBA, Penn, yada, yada, worked at this big company, this big company. And then when you ask basic questions that you, you wouldn't expect a logical answer from, like it, it, it requires some thought and, and like emotional, I guess you could say pragmatism, they just don't know how to respond to it. It's not just one plus one equals two. And that really surprised me because all these people went to the smartest and best schools in the country. Of course, there's wonderful people who went to those schools. But uh, I agree with you that the structured system that we grew up in 
and is changing, by the way. And so that's actually a big belief of what we're building with Omela, which we could talk about at another point. But I believe that in the next 20 years, 10 to 15% of all kids in the United States will be educated in a different way, specifically more individualized, one-on-one self-directed learning. Not all of it. I think it's not that 100% of the kids in the United States will leave the U.S. education system. I believe that's a lot of shit. Excuse the French. This is this is a French podcast. Yeah, yeah, we speak French. We speak Yiddish. We speak whatever we want here. Yeah, I don't know how to say it in Yiddish, but yeah. um, but <laughs> a good percentage of them, I think that that's going to happen, and we're really excited by it. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. I, that what is the what form does that take? Like, is that is that homeschooled? Is that charter schools? Is it small neighborhood communities? I think it's just the start. I think the pandemic kicked it off and it's somewhat of the wild, wild west right now and it's starting to form and you're seeing pods, micro schools, homeschools, teachers selling classes all over the internet. And it's great because it's operating like a true market. People are frustrated with the existing and they're building their own. Like they're finding a way to do it. One specifically that I think is really neat is called Acton Academy, which most people don't know about. There's 200 of these micro schools. Do you know about it? I have heard of it before. Uh, it, it came out of Texas, right? Is it- yep. Yeah. And an entrepreneur, a husband and wife couple, they actually built it. And it's it, it kind of follows all these main methodologies of self-directed individualized learning that believes that kids are incredible and they don't necessarily need a teacher to tell them to do this or that. Now, my entire adult career was built around helping teachers. And so I very much believe in them. And I don't think that they're the problem at all. Like, I think that they're a really important part of the U.S. education system. But back to the the micro schools and, and pods, it's growing really quickly. It's just in, in sort of wild, wild west phase and, and organizing itself. But Acton is like one good example that is doing it at scale. That's awesome. I, you, you gave the, the incubator some credit for teaching you the, the customer development practice, but I remember seeing you in college, like basically doing that by intuition. Like you were... You were just stopping students, like coming out of classes. You were getting consulting gigs from like local companies. Like you have been in like full contact with the market as certainly as long as I've known you and probably before that. Yeah, I, I forgot about that. And again, I actually think that came out of a place of not feeling like I had a place. And so when I met you in college, I was so frustrated because the, the business school of Michigan State denied me. And I get it, right? I'm not mad at them about it because like... The, probably the majority of, of students who go through that school end up working at a big Fortune 500 company. Nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to start something from scratch. And I was so curious. It's like, what does a consultant do? What does it mean to operate a business? And at the time, all this whole lean startup, Silicon Valley stuff, uh, like I didn't know anything about it. And it was just sort of starting. This was the time of Blackberries. And so I would go to the Barnes & Noble on Grand River, which I know you remember. And I would look up books on business. And I remember it said, How to Accounting for Dummies which is probably the last thing you want to read when you're starting a startup. I just didn't know what to do. So what I ended up doing was any entrepreneur that would talk to me, I would basically go knock on their door and say, hi, I'm Brad, I'm a student. I just want to know what you do every day because I'm interested in being an entrepreneur. And they were like, sure, I'm happy to explain it. And then I would get coffee with them. And I, I literally like went to a local coffee shop, a small business owner, and I sat down with them, what do you do? And they would kind of tell me, I'm like, no, no, I don't get it. Like, what do you do every day? You wake up, you put your pants on and you... You go to your coffee shop in the morning at 7 a.m. And then like between 7 and 9 p.m., what do you do? And I just really wanted to understand it because I was so curious and I really wanted to solve my problem. But at the time, it was kind of like figuring out the maze of, you know, it's like I have a mouse and there's cheese and there's a really big maze. And, and 
the maize was huge. I didn't, I, I, I can kind of sniff it. Like there's a nice piece of Swiss cheese. And I wanted to shrink that to figure out what my place was in the world. And you did that through this process of conversations? Yeah, I just talked to a ton of people and I tried things. So my first job and the only major company I've ever worked for is Kraft Foods. So I don't know if you knew this, but in college, I worked from, I don't know, Fridays and Saturdays usually from like 8 or 9 p.m. till 3 in the morning at the DeWitt Michigan Walmart. And I stocked Kraft cheese and cookies. I was a merchandiser. And I learned a ton from that. And so I tried things like that. And then I also just talked to a bunch of people. And then it was around 2005 or 6. When did we grab? No, maybe it was 2009. And like Facebook and Twitter were just becoming a thing. And I'm like, oh, I should become a social media consultant because there's all these companies that want to use social media. I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm young. I'll help them figure it out. And that sort of started on my entrepreneurial path. Do you remember the yeah, name I've, of the You're around for that. Social. I do. Social bonfire. That's right. I don't own that. I thought that was, it was awesome. Cool. Yeah. And Jake Leston, I think his name's Jake. He was the one to design the logo for free for me, which is very kind of him. It was, I mean, it was a very supportive ecosystem there and a bunch of like, I remember you, you were like a rock star for having built a successful company, like a consulting company when we were at school. I mean, there's a lot of sort of we had that little entrepreneurial circle. Yeah. Well, it was a great little community and, and we all go the, the kind of like five or 10 of us all go really back. I wouldn't call it successful, but I remember when this local company basically said, all right, we'll pay you like $125 an hour for 20 hours a week. Is that reasonable? And I nearly like... I almost fell over. Of I'd be like, yeah, that's all. And I walked out and I called my mom and I was like, wow, I should do more of this thing. Like, I just made X dollars working at craft. Well, like, they want to pay me all this money, but now I have to figure out how to do the work. And so, I don't know, go, go figure it out. And that, that's actually, I, oftentimes when I'm having a hard day, I'll go to my wife and I'll wake up in the morning and she's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, I'm okay. I need to figure out how to make something from nothing today. And that is literally what we as entrepreneurs do every day is like, you have to make something that's in your brain and somehow will it on the world from nothing. And it's hard, but it's really, it's really gratifying when it actually works, when people use the things that you built. And remind is certainly like a thing that exists in the very tangible world and reaches a ton of people that you and your brother had to will into existence a number of times. When would you say, I feel like I was there when the moment you decided to start Remind, but I don't know, like, where do you think that company actually started? Like, what was the moment of conception? Yeah, I remember exactly when it was. It was in 2009. I was a year and a half away from graduating. I had just worked my ass off. Am I allowed to have those light swear words or is that bad on here? Absolutely. We love chutzpah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, <laughs> I worked so hard on the paper, of which my very nice brother helped me on for hours. And he's super smart. So he has a very high, well, he has a high IQ and EQ, but where my EQ might be really high, his IQ is super high. And he's also a very good writer. And so he was very nice and would spend hours helping me. And then I would get like a C minus or a D. And it was so deflating. And I sort of had this point where I was like, okay, I have a path. I'm either going to like drop out of school, do who, does, do who knows what, or I'm just going to start something to solve my problem. And after I got that grade, I called him. And I said, hey, I'm starting a company. I want you and need you to do it with me because he has so many gifts that I don't. You have 24 hours. And then he called me in five minutes like, okay, let's do it. And the, and the first version of that, I don't know how granular you want me to get, was I thought, well, if all of my friends received text messages on their BlackBerry every day, if we were to go to lunch, I would text you. 
why do we have to use these very antiquated software systems that we use in our education? And I'm not going to name names, but you've all used them in college or even high school. They're just old and clunky and slow. And so my brother helped build an Excel using Excel macros, a system that would send me a text message running on, on my computer through a mobile gateway. And so let me take a step back. The concept was I have a hard time remembering when I have assignments, quizzes, tests. I have ADD and I'm dyslexic, clinically diagnosed, by the way, not just saying that to be fun. And not to be fun, meaning like every entrepreneur says they have that. I literally do. And I would miss it's, it's become fashionable to be yeah neuroatypical and it's yeah I don't actually know if one can lose it though like I don't know if I still have it or because I'm very I'm very glad that I have those quote disabilities I don't know if you could actually lose it but anyway that's besides the point so I wanted a way to remember about things coming up I wanted a second brain because I had to remember everything I just wasn't good at that and so he built a system that would use Excel and using a macros would send a text message through a mobile gateway. And for any nerds that are watching, it is a highly unreliable way to send a text. <laughs> I don't even know if the, <laughs> if the carriers will let you do that anymore, but it was like your phone number at AT&T or Verizon.net delivered 50% of the And you had to keep my computer on. So if my computer fell asleep, then the system wouldn't work. But it worked for me. So like it would send me a text. Says, hey, Brett, you have a quiz coming up or you have a test coming up. And then I'm like, huh, it works for me. I wonder if it would work for Christine, who is my one of my best friends, roommate, and reminds longest-term employee. She's there right now, funny enough. Yeah, her name's Chris, you know Christine Garland. And it sent her a text and it saved her and a few other of our friends from missing assignments. And that was our first sort of taste of like, whoa, we built this really shitty, you know, scrappy system, but it worked. And that kind of got us hooked. And that was in 2009. So, you know, public it evolved a long way from there, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. In publicly, your mind said it was starting in 2011 because we basically hit our head against a wall for the next two and a half years, not knowing what my late father would say. Shit from Shinola, uh, which I don't think is Yiddish, but it's a good, a good. Have you heard that? <laughs> yeah, you have. Yeah, yeah. We had no idea. We were just, we were just like a rocket ship with no guidance system. We had so much energy. Like I have a lot of energy now. I'm 35. Imagine not. You know me. Like when I was 22, we just wanted to like do a lot of things that have impact on the world. Yeah, it's it's so fun. Looking back at like the amount of effort I channeled extremely poorly into things like in in my in college and early 20s. Like I worked so hard on things that were so dumb because that's just like w w the mix of skills that we had. I don't know if they were that dumb. I remember the bamboo shirt, like you were starting something. Yeah, and like those are all like reps that you learn and like come through and it is it's true like you kind of get you do get successive tastes. Like uh, you know, your your social bonfire kind of led to like Remind V1 that was like, "Oh, we can solve problems with technology, we can talk to people, we can understand things, we can deliver solutions." And the same thing like my buddy Jack Butcher has a his, his mantra is just like go make $1 on the internet. Like get that first taste, which I, I think is a really helpful framework for people who are kind of getting into it. Yeah, that's great. I like that. How did you know to like keep that ball going forward? Like th this is something that that small taste led to such a huge outcome over a long period of time through I, what I know are a long, <laughs> a long series of like hints from the universe that like maybe this thing doesn't need to exist. Maybe this is too hard. Maybe the market doesn't want it. Like how how did you decide at each gate to like to keep going to keep improving like which problems to solve and to keep persisting and building this company 
you ask that question in such an eloquent way, hence from the universe. And so what Eric means by that, because Eric's known me since 2000 and you have been since 2005, there was multiple times where our company should have died. And I think what kept us from dying, not only dying in the literal sense, but our company dying, which at the time I felt like would be me dying because I tied my identity so close to the company. Of course, I'm a human and it's a company, but it's a very hard thing to decouple. I know that sounds like a joke, but especially when it's very big, when mine has 30 million users, it's a hard thing as a founder to decouple yourself. That's her. Uh, and when it's your first company and when yeah. you don't have, you know, a family yet and stuff yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah. So we just, I think it came from two things. One was what I talked about in the beginning, me wanting to prove to the world that I had a place because I felt so insecure over such a long time. That sort of propelled me to refuse to die. Like I just refused to stop no matter what. And it was really hard. And I don't want it, I don't want, you know, people or founders watching this or potential founders to look at this saying like, oh, how glorious. Like, oh, it's such a great concept that he was like working so hard and killing himself to do this thing that's now really big. It was really hard. Like, you know, there was times all my friends came out of school making really good money and having full-time jobs and going out on the weekends and yada yada. And don't get me wrong, like I, I had I have a great life. I'm super happy. I don't regret anything. But on a Friday night where all my friends are going out to the bar, I was grinding looking up all of our competitors or trying to figure out who our customer is or trying to figure out what Twilio is because Twilio was just starting and I wasn't an engineer. I'm not an engineer. And so it was just like this sheer will to not stop. I think a lot of that actually comes from our um, upbringing. Like, so I'm from Chicago. We grew up in a middle upper class neighborhood. We played football. I'm not a meathead anymore, but at one point I was. I used to be the 260 pound um, lineman and my coach, we reference this a lot in our first company right, when we would talk to our employees. My coach, his name's Mark Gagofsky, one of the best life teachers I've ever had. I remember there was one point where he, there was just like 280 pound defensive lineman and I would try to block that lineman and I just couldn't, physically couldn't. And I walk up to my coach and I said, coach, I can't block him. He's too big. And coach just looks at me and he goes, Brett, find a way to do it. And I was like, what do you mean? I just can't. He's too big. He's just, just figure it out. And I never understood what that meant until Remind which is when you start a company, you just have to be unbelievably resourceful and just find a way because mommy and daddy aren't going to come and help you. You just have to figure it out. It just forces you to do it. And I think that is what sort of kept us going through the dark times. What, what were what were some of those hints from the universe? Like, what is it, how does that manifest when you're like, this is a pivotal moment of like, oh, God, I got one. oh shit, yeah. So let me give an act. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I, the only reason I'm interrupting you is because I didn't want to forget it. In 2011, David and I moved out to Silicon Valley. We ripped, we had an existing application and had 300 users. It was bad. They weren't really active. And Jeff Ralston, who now runs Y Combinator, but he started Imagine K12, basically said to us, go talk to your customers and solve a problem and build something simple to do. Just go talk to customers. And we're like, okay. And so we go talk to 200 teachers one-on-one -on -one in six weeks. We put together this crappy prototype on a piece of paper, a sketch. And then we built a very simple V1 very quickly and it worked. And like people were growing, like all of a sudden we had like a thousand users and it was like 5,000 users. And before we know it, we were like David and I and one engineering consultant, and we were probably adding three to 5,000 users a week that were very engaged. It's like a really good accomplishment. And every text message, so Remind days, take a step back. Remind makes it easy for teachers to communicate with students and parents. For anyone who's a technical, it's like Slack for schools. Every text message we sent using Twilio at the time was a cent. For anyone who uses Twilio now, you'll think that's crazy because their prices have obviously dropped. 
But mind you, this was in 2011. And we had raised $25,000, I think, of which 90% was out the door because David and I have big appetites. It had been three months. We, we ate a lot. And it had been three months and we had no money. And it was running out very quickly. And David, and this is the part to listen to, he woke up from a nightmare that he was being drowned in pennies because we were growing so quick and sending so many text messages, but making no money yet, which I don't recommend people do. But for at the time, it was right for us. And so that was one very pivotal point. Now, we agreed and it was a handshake because I think I had $500 to my name. My brother had a little more because he had been working. And we agreed that even though I don't have the money now, if we go really in debt, I will pay you back. I will pay you back just on a handshake. He's my brother. Fortunately, we never got to that position. But I'll never forget the drowned in penny stories because by logic, the company should have either shut down or said, all users stop. We need to charge you today. That would have been the wrong decision for our company. And how did you, you made it through by bankrolling that personally until you had the investor money come through? No, we got a little lucky. We were at Imagine K-12's demo day and I kind of told myself, it's like, if there's ever 30 seconds in which I'm not talking to an investor, I don't care if there's a group of 10 people all talking to each other, I will walk in, interrupt and pitch because like we are going to die. And if I like, I have to raise money. And that, that happened. And it's, and I'm, I'm being explicit in explaining this because I want you to know like how uncomfortable it was, but there was 200 investors in the room. There's a group of 10 of them talking to each other. And I'm like, shit, 29, 30, I'm alone. I need to talk to someone. And I walk up to this guy and I had researched them before. And I tap on the shoulders like, hey, I'm Brett. Nice to meet you. And I shake his hand. And I told him, I was like, I want to tell you how I'm going to disrupt the $4 billion emergency alert market. I don't even remember how big it was at that point. And he's like, okay. And I was like, and in my head, I was thinking, he's like, oh my God. He said, okay, okay, go. And, <laughs> and he ended up investing in our company after a few meetings and, and sort of saving us, giving us a bridge. Of, I don't know. It was probably $50,000 at that point. His name was Clint Corver from Ulu Ventures. Um, of which we're actually tiny LPs in their fund now. And and there was there's a string of those, by the way. It wasn't easy. They, you know, Reminds raised over $60 million to this point from some of the world's best VCs, but it was a grind in the beginning, mostly because we didn't know how to tell a story, of which I'm, I'm happy to talk about if you'd like. But yeah, that was quite an experience. Yeah, there, there's a lot. I feel like I have a lot of branches I want to take from that. I think it's one is really interesting. I feel like there's a few companies that were enabled, big companies that like became possible when Twilio came around. Yeah. How, how much did you feel like you were like, oh, this company can exist now when you had the ability to use Twilio? I didn't know it at the time, but I knew that there was no other alternatives. Just like Stripe today. Stripe is an enabling system for millions of companies, including Omela. And it's going to birth billion dollar, multiple billion dollar companies because of the infrastructure. And what I mean by that is Remind doesn't want to be in the business of carrier communication infrastructure. Remind should be in the business of making it easy. You know, if carriers are down here, right up here, super easy interfaces, great customers for branding, solving a problem for the customer. Same thing with Stripe. Like I don't think Stripe, well, at least at the moment, they're in the they're in the business of providing infrastructure to enable a growth in the entire GDP in the economy which you know. So at the time I didn't know, now I know, now I know. And like for Omela, we're all in on Stripe and there's other companies who do this too, but it's, it's just super cool. It's like once in probably a century type companies that allow all these other things to be birthed. Yeah. Th those are really interesting. Those, those enabling platforms are really interesting things to look out for when you're looking for opportunities or new problems that can be solved. The other thing, so I, I I'm curious about Remind's story. 
I'm also curious. I mean, it sounds all of the money that you raised from a bunch of top tier investors. What what role did investor selection, I, I want to say, play in Remind's success? When you say investor selection, you mean how important were the investors to us winning? Yeah. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. So I have a pretty strong belief. So the, first of all, they're wonderful. John Doerr is on our board, Chamath Baltapia invested, Naval Ravikant, like this list of tier one investors. For the most part, my belief with investors is they're very helpful for raising capital. They're very helpful for signaling to the market that you at least have something. And they are sometimes helpful on providing strategy and insight based on a wealth of experience. And let me give an example of that. I think what's happening in the market today, of which, by the way, I'm young enough, I'm 35, where when you and I were graduating school, it was the first downturn. And I was totally oblivious to it because I was starting my first company. I didn't even know like what the mortgage crash was back then. I didn't even have a mortgage. like I didn't know about it. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. And so I do think that there's value. Like Right now, there's probably a credible amount of value to having a bunch of experienced operators or investors in the room who can help say, like you need to cut down a bird immediately or like get a cash flow positive, et cetera. So they were really helpful with that. Those, those three things, I should say. But beyond that, the company will live or die by the founders and the team. Like, period, end of story. And so I don't over tilt on it. What I tilt on now when I raise money is they're extremely high quality people from a values perspective. I want to work with them for 10 years and they will leave me alone until I call them and I need them. And that's just because, like, you know, we're not perfect, but like we have a pretty, we have a playbook, we know what we're doing. We don't want someone to be knocking on our door every three or four days. We have a long-term view on what we're building and we just want to go execute on that. And as long as they give us that trust, it's a really solid relationship. Yeah, I've, I feel like that's, I, when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, sometimes as an investor, I'm like, I'm not going to promise that we're going to be super helpful, but I will promise that we will leave you alone. And there, there are entrepreneurs who massively identify with that. Yeah. And there's a place and a time for it. Like I ping you, I ping our other investors a lot when we have specific questions that I need help on something. And it's just a delight. Now, let's just acknowledge bias. I've been doing this since 2009. When I first started Remind, I'll never forget this. Chamath, who was one of our first investors, says, you guys need to hire a product manager. And I remember looking at my brother, we're like, great, that sounds good. And then we walk out of the meeting like, what is a product manager? And we didn't, I know that might sound ridiculous to the typical like Silicon Valley people watching this or who have built companies or are building companies, but we didn't know anything. We All we cared about was talking to customers and figuring out how to deliver value to them. We didn't understand all the structure that goes behind building a company yet. That's why I love your story, actually. And I, and I tell it to a lot of people in brief, like... It is, it is proof that you do not have to learn all of the crazy Silicon Valley jargon and all the shit. You don't have to read 50 books to go start a company. If you appropriately find and solve a customer's problem, you can learn the rest of the maze as you go. You can find out what a product manager is when you need a product manager. But if you go talk to you know your 200 teachers and you build a prototype and you take that to market, the growth will come. And if the growth comes, the investors will come and... The, the knowledge will come and the team will come and everything else will kind of unfold from that kernel. And yeah, I mean, what's maybe most it, like, uh, I feel like a lot of people also grow out of that simple discipline. And I don't think you have and, and Omela, I mean, we can kind of start that transition toward that piece of the story is, is another example of that, like you are taking everything that you learned from remind and the experience of remind and like going back to zero, but with all of the skills and 
insights that you you took and building something out again, following like a lot of the same concepts. Yeah, Yiddish word drop. I'm going to drop it right here. You've obviously heard the one Meshugana, which means crazy. Like you would think that I'm Meshugana or crazy to do this again because it is so hard to start it. But I love it. It's like, it's what I do. And actually, like I give talks to a lot of students in classes because I've been in building and education and technology for 10 plus years. And I, and I do clarify with them, like, just because they don't want to start a, maybe they don't want to start a business or a small business or a startup, that's, that's okay. Like, I used to think that everyone should do it, but it's really difficult and only certain people really want to do it. Like, it, there shouldn't be some type of beautiful veil or curtain that makes it seem like it's really wonderful. It's really hard. For me, it's very fulfilling and worth it, but not everyone should be doing it. I'm a little crazy. He's <laughs> a little mashugana. A little mashugana. So what was the problem clear to you when you were at Remind? Did you know you were going to start, go start another company? Has this been brewing for a long time? Yeah. So just to give backstory, so Remind really started scaling in 2011. Remind currently has 30 million active users. 80% of US teachers actively use it. Send probably one to 5 billion messages a week. Very healthy revenue, growing quickly. I'm on the board of that company, a few hundred employees, yada, yada. In 2013 or 14, I basically tried to build payments into Remind. And the reason is because there was, there was two trends happening at the time. One, in 2011, we were watching everything going on with WeChat and Line and Kakao, which everyone knows now, but at the time they didn't, which is messaging apps in Asia. And what ended up happening was they would build a highly engaging user base, user base via messaging. This is my, my hand messaging. And then they would build a transaction layer over that to allow people to pay for things. And now it's just common, right? So Facebook Messenger, Line, WhatsApp's going to do it very soon. It's taking them a little bit. Maybe they already do it. And we're like, wow, there's a similar playbook here, but like no one's doing it in education. And also I saw these teachers collecting, trying to collect a huge amount of money. And at the core, I really like helping people that I feel like don't have good software and are doing important work in their local communities. I'm a very mission-driven founder. And in our case, that was teachers. And so I tried to actually build payments into Remind and I failed, which was really hard, but it didn't work. Uh, how, how come? Thought about Why that a lot. I, I think that there's many reasons. We were probably 80 people at that point. We had raised $30 million. We had 25 million, 20 million active users. And the expectations were that we should just turn on revenue and should just rip and start growing really quickly. And it, it was it's hard to build a business on top of a business, which is what we were doing, which is why I don't prescribe that people wait to charge for their company. And then with Omela, the second we launched it, we made revenue from day one. I don't regret not charging with Remind from day one. I just regret not doing it a bit sooner because it just takes time. Like you hear these stories about these companies ripping from day one and 99% of the time, or maybe 98, there's a grind for years and then they finally hit on something and it grows. And so I think it was a mixture of expectations, not having enough time. And then I think the third thing was, I was too abstracted away from the customer and the product. By that point, I was working on being a CEO and leading the company versus talking to customers as much and being in the product as much. And I'm a very product-focused founder. Same for my brother. He's my co-founder. He was very focused on growth and, and distribution. So I think that those are the reasons why. And the other one is it's just really hard. Like along with government, healthcare, and education, those are the three very old, antiquated, super political verticals. And it just moves very slow. It's like there's a 10-year lagging indicator. So I think that those are the reasons why. And I just couldn't let it go. I couldn't. Uh, I, I just couldn't uh, because I think it's a, a really big problem. So, so this problem of, of 
teachers collecting money, Remind mm-hmm. couldn't quite add it in as a, as a feature. It's been sitting on your mind for, what, that's seven or eight years now, right? Yeah, I've thought about it. I started thinking about it in 2012 or 13. I don't know the okay. math on that. It's 2022, so wow. it's been eight to ten, 10 years, yeah. Yeah, and I've tried. It's not like I was just sitting on it. Like, I tried and I failed, and it was just low-grade brewing of, like, this thing. <laughs> and by the way, Stripe, when did Stripe start? Do you know? Mm, around 2011, 10. So they, were, so they existed. I don't think that they were nearly as prolific. So they did exist. But they're a good, and we probably even built a prototype on them. But they're an example where they do so much now. Like we sit on Stripe Connect and we don't have to worry about this large, they abstract so much away around uh, the MTL license, which means money tra- money transmitter license and like connected accounts and all of these things where we could just focus on what we're gifted at and they focus on core payments infrastructure. It's very enabling. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, I know that was part of, like when you first started looking at building Omela, because so you left for mind, you took a break, then Omela started brewing a little more. And, and I remember the deep dive you took into like, all right, what are the enabling tech? What are, what are the payments? What does Stripe look like? How do we, how do we actually move the money around? What can we build on as like part of the early research? But I want to, I want to like do really high def look at that time when you were kind of like, you were thinking about starting a company, you were planning on starting a company, but you did really intensive both customer and and sort of market and technology research before really even committing to it. And I think that is a very underrated period of time, an understudied thing in companies. Yeah. So we took a break. And then after that break, my brother and I knew we wanted to start a company together. The question was what and why? And it, what we didn't let ourselves immediately do payments in education. We thought to ourselves, like, well, what are the biggest problems that we have and we care about? And so most people publicly don't know this, but in 2015, my dad died. And it was kind of like a slow process of him dying because he had Parkinson's. And so not only like was I running the company and I was getting married soon, and my dad was dying. There's all these immense emotional pressures going on. And he passed from Parkinson's. And so we, we really cared about healthcare. And a lot of the, the specific part of healthcare we started caring about was the financial logistical operations around that, dealing with his will and like nurses because he was in Chicago. And it's just like, it's just horrible, both to emotionally have to handle it, but also the financial burden of it. It's like, why isn't there a playbook and like a web app to like walk you through this? And so we thought about healthcare. And then I basically went and talked to 20 or 30 doctors, nurses, patients, anyone that would touch it, anyone. I talked to your mom. I talked to your you mom. Talked to my mom. Yeah. yeah, my mom's a nursing administrator. Yeah, I remember I, doing that. I was trying to like understand what the problem is. We decided not to do anything in healthcare is because in my opinion, it doesn't seem to function like a true market. Meaning I have a buyer and I have someone who wants to sell something to that buyer and there is value exchange. And in the healthcare, and I'm, I'm super not... I'm not a, I'm the farthest thing from an expert in healthcare. So don't quote me on this, but you know, there's a health insurance company, there's a doctor and there's a patient and like, there's not a clear line. And so we didn't feel like we were uniquely suited to solve that problem. And there was two other ideas that we had, but we said, nope, that was one. Another one, I wanted to start an off-road rollerblading company. If anyone wants to take this, please do. I know that sounds crazy, but I like rollerblading. I haven't done it for a while. Well, like, just like there's mountain biking, why doesn't it exist where there's inflatable tires with shock absorbers that you can go rollerblading with? And my wife would joke with me because I think like, I would drop circles on a piece of paper and I'm not, I'm not a hardware engineer. I wouldn't know the first thing about building it. Anyway, just to fast forward, we cycled through a bunch of ideas 
And I just could not stop thinking about payments. And so we had a, a simple framework to decide. One was founder market fit, which uh, I'm sure you've heard before. I don't know who coined it. I think Packy might have been the one to mention it a lot in his articles, Packy McCormick. But it's when the founder has unique gifts or experiences in the specific market they're going after. And we had spent a decade, we understand teachers better than anyone. And I can say that with confidence because we've talked to thousands. We know all the data to support it with financial transactions. And we really care about it, like deeply care about it. It's like, wow, we're not going to build a rocket ship. We'd be really bad at that, but we'd be good at this. And that was one. And then the other one was like, do we want to spend 10 years of our lives plus building this? And the answer was yes, because we cared about it so much. And we think it's a huge market. And so that set us off in the path. And that was in August of 2019. And we've been very quiet about it since, just talking to customers and building product. That is all we've done for pretty much two and a half years straight. How many customers did you talk to before you started building product? I talked to a lot. So I've spoken to over 2,000. Well, excuse me. Now I've spoken to over 2,000. Before we wrote a line of code, I probably spoke to over 500. And one-on-one in Zoom, because it was, well, a little bit before pre-pandemic in person, but mostly Zoom or phone calls. And people always think I'm a little bit crazy for that, but I have a very specific reason and methodology. One is because I believe it is my, our job, my brother and I, to understand the problem better than anyone. Not for the sake of understanding it though, because it informs what we build. And then the second one is for distribution, which most founders don't think about. Or I shouldn't say that, most first-time founders often don't think about, which is how you get users at scale. And I just really like doing it, sometimes too much, because you know I, I probably over-tilt on it because I like doing it so much. So we've spoken to over 500 before writing a line of code. Can you tell us more like excruciating detail about this? process? Like, how do you organize it? What are the conversations like? What are the notes that you take? And, and what do you do with them once once you kind of have those learnings? What, when do you have like high conviction in, a, in an idea that you learn from this process? Yep. So I think that there's two parts to it. First is the infrastructure. I know it sounds basic, but we were pretty early users of Notion and we didn't realize how powerful and flexible it was. And so we have a Notion CRM that has a bunch of data in it from my conversations that we have figured out how to structure and quantify. And that leads me to my second point, which is quantitative and qualitative data. Nothing in the beginning is statistically significant because you have like two users or five or 10 or 50 or 100. It's not statsig. Statsig meaning like you have enough of a sample size so you know that with confidence, you could say test A is right over test B. And so what we would do is I would go talk to a bunch of users. And what that looks like is how I actually did it. I would look on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter for anyone who I knew that could potentially be a customer. Just like in healthcare, when I thought that we might want to go down that route, I said, Eric, your mom's a nurse. Can I talk to her? I would find any teacher I knew, any club, any parent-teacher association, any micro school. And I wasn't selling. I was doing customer development. It's like, hey, I'm Brett. I started this thing called Remind. I am thinking about solving a problem in this space because it seems hard. Can you talk to me for 15 minutes? Usually they say yes. I'm very flexible to their schedule. And then I talk a little and I listen a lot and I look for trends. And then when I hear those, I immediately summarize my notes. I tag my brother in it. We have a very fast discussion. And then after 20, 30, 50, 100 conversations, you have trends. Because you don't want to make a decision just on one customer because then it's like, maybe there's just one voice in the room. But after like, if there's 20, 30, 40 people all saying, God, it's frustrating to do this. I'm using these 10 different systems. By the way, can I pay you money right now for this? They're like, huh, I wonder if something's there. And then we go even deeper to really understand what it is. Because there's a weighting of a problem, of course. Everyone knows the whole vitamin versus painkiller and you really want it to be a, a, a painkiller. So 
I know that's, I summarize it, but that is, that is the process we use. And it does not stop once we like get users, even at scale at Remind, even though I wasn't doing it as much because I was leading the company, I still did support every day. And I talked to customers. I still do that today, every day. So how did those, what are some of those trends that you, that you picked up on? Like what, what were the breadcrumbs that led to from, Hey, we want to solve a problem in this space to, you know, Omela the product as it exists today? It was a few things. The first was the sheer amount of systems that our customers had to use to do what they wanted to do. I can give an example. Like if we talked to a parent teacher association, they would use a mixture between Venmo, spreadsheets, check, cash, Google forms, Wufu name your fundraising service because there's a thousand of them to like operate their back office. It was so much work and it took them so much time. Super inefficient. The second was they spent a bunch of money on credit card fees if they use something like Square. And then the third one was really important, but uh, I often think that people say more with their, with the way they look than the words they say. And so when you talk to them, when I would ask them a question, be like, oh yeah, that's a really big problem for me. In my mind, I'm like, bullshit. I don't believe you <laughs> because no one wants to hurt your feelings. You're a nice person, right? As an entrepreneur, no one wants to say like, oh, we don't like your idea, but you want to get to truth really fast. And so then I would say like, really, is that true? Like, how did you actually do that? And they're like, well, so what I look for is when the eyes bulge out of their head and they're like, gosh, is that frustrating? I use these five different services for it. It takes me 20 hours a week. I'm super frustrated because I have to physically walk to the bank to deposit these things. And by the way, like our small organization that collects 100,000 a year spends $4,000 in credit card fees. It's crazy. I wish there was something else. I and mean, of course, the best thing is if they hand you money right now, which oftentimes doesn't happen that fast. But those are the things tactically that I look for and then look at and then I look for trends in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine there's an amazing feedback loop between, hi, I'm Brett, I want to understand your problem they feel like you really do listen and understand. And then you come back, you know, a month later or six months later with something that you built to solve their problem. Like that, that is, you know, you mentioned distribution quickly as being like a big reason to do that, but that's also a huge bond with a customer and proof of, you know, proof of work, proof of effort, proof of, you know, your, the intent that you have to really serve them. Yeah. And, you know, in the early days, we're not a big corporate company. I want them to know who I am. I'm married. My wife's name is Courtney, little boy. I want to know about them because I really want to understand them. Like, I want to understand their persona. Like, I want to understand why a micro school, I don't know if they're calling like a president or a leader, like the owner of a micro school decides to start this and have 30 kids and collect a million dollars a year. Like, why do they do that? Especially if they have five kids of their own. What propels them to do that? Because it helps me do everything is in service of understanding the problem deeply. The more I understand the problem, the more we can solve the problem. It is not their job. It's not their their job, job to articulate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we need to understand it really yeah. well. That's why we ask so many questions. And what's it's interesting to see Omela's sort of customer evolve, right? Like you're you're now in the education industry. It's not just teachers who use this product. It's like, you know, I think you mentioned PTA heads, you mentioned micro schools, you've mentioned principals. It is now like, how much wider is the purview, I guess, maybe of Omela than, than Remind was in terms of like who the, who the market is for who, uh, for the problem that this solves? Yeah, good question. It's very different. Remind was, I am a teacher. I teach between pre-K and K, call it 20, up to college. And I have one problem. 
OML is different. There's multiple segments, PTA, micro school, club, etc. Thematically, they all have a similar problem. But if you really dive in deep, it's a little bit different. And, and so it's a very hard problem to solve because the market we're going after is quite fragmented. But they all have similar attributes. They all collect a certain amount of money. They all have a very big problem. They all don't have a single way to like operate their back office. They all spend a ton of money in credit card fees. And so there is a very similar theme amongst them. Interesting. How, how much money does a, a organization need to gather before it's kind of like, oh, this is like our bread and butter? Yeah, usually anywhere from 50000 to $2 million. But any time that an organization collects at least $100,000, it's like, God, is this complex. And just for anyone who doesn't understand why, if I lead a club, and like a college club, even we have a bunch of college clubs using us, like Spartan Ski Club in Michigan State, they have 2,000 members. They have to collect registration info for 2,000 members. They have to charge for dues. They have to charge for ticket sales. They have to sell merchandise. Use 10... Were you in Spartan Ski Club? No, but I went to some of the parties. Did you? Okay. I wasn't in it. I didn't go to any of their parties. I should have. <laughs> um, it's just super... It's just a very complex use case. And zooming out, our hypothesis is as follows after talking to customers. If you were to look at a square investor presentation, like they would have the deck of their TAM and they would say SMBs are a core customer, then mid-market, then enterprise. We believe that there's an entire layer below SMBs, hence Omela. And there's millions of organizations. And I say organization because usually they're not a registered LLC or C-Corp. They are some version of a 501c3 nonprofit, a school, a micro school, a music school, a karate school. They collect a ton of money. They have a very acute problem. There is no single system that solves it in a single place. And so that's why we're, we're like, we're super focused on it. We really love, we really love the space. That's awesome. I mean, those are, and there's a lot of money to collect and a lot of information to manage, like, you know, collecting a million, two million, like that's bigger than a lot of small businesses and sure. enormously complex. Yeah. I'll give you one specific example. Like there's a band in Illinois, they have 10 different physical forms that parents and students have to sign. They have 12 different times during the year where they have to collect money for different things, band dues, ticket sales, going on a field trip, all of these different things. And they use so many different systems to manage it. Not their fault, but they're doing a wonderful job trying to hack it together. But like anytime an entrepreneur sees that, they're like, huh, this, this like stack can be simplified into one. I wonder if that would help them. Yeah. It is amazing that we are now like, I don't know, 50 years into building software, uh, like aggressively as a, as a planet. And there's still huge, huge unsolved things like this that like entire is like bigger than an industry. It's like a, a layer to, you know, your point, like a layer of people who just are wildly underserved by the tools that exist. And, and it's something so much more precise can come in and solve a huge problem for them is, is incredible. I think a lot of people think that that's like, oh, all the software that exists that will exist. And it's like, no, there's still so much opportunity there. If you actually go and explore for problems and go fishing and listen and seek ways to improve people's lives. I, I totally agree. I think it's very early days. And especially like, you know, there's all this like crypto and Web3 stuff, which I'm far from an expert on, and there's wonderful people solving it. But I think sometimes people forget that there are customers that are still doing things via physical pen and paper who are using really antiquated systems, if it's even software, all built on COBOL, mm -hmm. like for an engineer, <laughs> or like cold fusion, like really old systems. And we really want to help them. We really want to help them. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the distribution. Cause I think that was something that Remind did really, really well. The kind of 
seems to have similar characteristics. It's something that a lot of people overlook or, or think that good product is inherently distribution, which is not always true. But Remind grew really, really quickly. And I think that Omela is poised to do much the same thing in part due to your the customer development, but I think also sort of the inherent distribution in the product. And I, I'd love to you to kind of maybe tie those two together or, or show us how you can do that more deliberately. Yeah, there's two, there's similar themes between Remind and Omelo, and it's as follows. One entity needs to either reach, communicate, or collect information from hundreds of entities. And an entity could be a teacher, an organization, uh, for a different company, you could even call it a small business. And they have a bunch of endpoints that they have to collect money from, or they have to communicate with students, parents, coaches, or maybe they have to collect money again from parents or a PTA needs to collect money from a parent or a nonprofit has to collect money or donations from their constituent. And so the whole hypothesis is if we can get this and help them, they'll help us get this. Very simple. And so just to give an example for mind, I think in the early days, every teacher that would we would acquire and activate, and I'm happy to talk about what those terms mean, uh, they would bring in anything from like 20 to 40 students and parents. And a subset of those would invite more teachers. And so there's this inherent flywheel. And look, like you hear a lot of this stuff in the Valley, there's no fancy growth hacks that we did. We built a good product, we removed friction, we measured it very frequently, and, and we really helped our customer. Like we solved a big problem. If your product doesn't solve a problem in the first place, then it's not gonna grow, right? There's no magic software. Yeah, I, I kind of increasingly think like, no matter how what companies do, they don't actually sell their product. Like their customers sell their product for them. It, it, it's pretty, if you go through life believing that the only way things grow is through word of mouth, you it will guide you much more right than wrong. Especially in industries like education, I feel like where, where it's such a small world and people are so closely tied and everybody wants to know what everybody else is using and they talk all the time. And I feel like Omela will have similar dynamics. Yeah, for sure. Now it's a little bit different in, in the respect that you know, like we iterated on Remind and there was a single problem to solve and it just started ripping. And we've been a bit more methodical and uh, we've approached Omela in a different way. And our head of engineering calls it the theory of constraints. He didn't come up with this framework. Have you heard that before, the theory of constraints? Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, Eli Goldrat, Eli Goldrat, right? The goal, the theory of constraints. I actually have no idea who even said it. It's just, it was the first oh. time I heard it. I really like the concept of it. But, but his name is Felipe. He told me, he's like, you basically in the nuclear, in the next call it 30, 60, 90 days, you figure out what is the biggest blocker and then you remove that constraint. And so when we thought about building a company, of course, the first thing to do, Omela specifically, was you have a hypothesis, you talk to customers. But then when you think about growth, you start backwards, which is, um, do they retain? Then are they engaged? Then do they activate? And do the, can you acquire them? And I actually want to talk about this for a sec because I think it's really important. Retention means over a long period of time, do they keep coming back? The best way to have this is if you have a long-term cohort analysis. In the beginning, you don't because you're just starting. But over five, 10 years, for Remind as an example, a large majority of the customers keep coming back. And then engagement is the frequency in which they come. There's a bunch of ways to measure this. Usually here, monthly active, weekly active, daily active. If you have a very sticky product, then you get into words like weekly active over daily. Of all the users every week, how active are they every day? And then you get to activation, which is when they hit your web property, do they actually sign up and collect $1, send one message, et cetera, and then acquire them? Can you get a lot of them? That's the framework. And so the way, the way we've approached it is eliminating threats from retention to engagement to activation. And now we're eliminating the threat of acquisition. Of course, there's other things like business model and margin and employee retention and culture. We think about all those things too. 
Uh, but specifically as it relates to how we're building this business, that's how we're approaching it. And it's been super fun. I, and I love the focus that you mentioned before on removing friction. How, how do you, when you approach, you know, one of those bottlenecks, you know, how often do you find that the solution is is removing something or simplifying versus adding something new? It depends on the company. So Remind, it was often simplifying even more. Remind solved it. So Remind went niche to win. We started with one thing and then we layered on all these services. It's a very full-fledged messaging app right now. We do everything from like tutoring to we have a product where we sell to schools. We have an emergency alert system. There's a bunch, but we started with one thing. Omel is different because the problems are very wide and deep because we replace so many different services. And so, you know, when I talk to our team about what we're building, we kind of have an X and Y axis of Omela needs to be really powerful. So it has to do a lot. And then up here in my fingers, so my face right up here, it needs to be really simple. And that's very hard to do. Salesforce, as just an example, is extremely powerful. And it also takes six months to onboard and it's super expensive. It's probably not simple. Venmo is super simple, but it lacks power. And so I think that there's a balance and, and you shouldn't just like say, oh, like, well, Mel did this or reminded this. You should think to yourself like, well, what is right for my company given my customers and my market? I think I, last time I saw the Omelo homepage, I think that was the tagline, a powerfully simple way to collect money for organizations to collect money. Yeah, we might have maybe tested that and iterated on it. And, and just a fun fact, when we, when we do that, we both talk to like three or four customers and get their feedback. We're like, hey, what do you think of this? And then we also put it on the site and measure it just to get both. Because again, we're not, it's not like oh, every mind when you have 20, 30 million users, you like put up an A-B test, run a test, and within a few days, you have a statistically significant answer. You can't do that in the early days when you're just starting out. Yeah, yeah, qualitative and quantitative, definitely both. Pursuing both at the same time and making sure they both agree <laughs> at, our, at the early stage. I'd love to, I'd love to do some kind of first, first company, second comparison, company comparisons as a founder. You, you talked about like massive willpower and, and sort of naivete, like powering you through some of the stuff that, that you went through at Remind. How different does that feel now as a second time founder where you kind of know what you're getting into? But I mean, are you, do you feel a little more, you know, a, a little less just driven by like raw, stubborn, like persistence? Or do you feel like that is as necessary of a component sort of the second time around as it was the first? My wife would tell you, I still have raw, stubborn persistence. I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> stubborn. I think there's a few big changes. One, I'm young, but I'm not as young as I used to be. And I also have different responsibilities. I have a child, I'm married, I have a dog, and we'll probably have more kids. And so I've sort of reframed what matters to me and why. And this part's kind of this important. The first company, Remind, I would work 17, 18 hours a day I didn't eat healthy. Everything was in sacrifice of the company. And I was exhausted from it, like overweight, emotionally just tired. And when I took a break in 2018, I sort of took a step back and say, well, what matters to having a good life for me? And it was three, three things. And I don't necessarily believe in goals because you kind of run and try to achieve something. And then you're constantly trying to achieve it versus enjoying the day to day. But there are themes. And the first theme is health for me, both emotional and physical. The second one is my family. And then the third one is Omela. And if I don't have the first one, then I can't support the other two. And so tactically what that means, I work out five or six days a week. I fast, I do all that stuff. Like I try to eat healthy. I try not to eat that many carbs, even though I do. And that reframing has been pretty helpful. The reason I say pretty helpful is because I'm not perfect at it. It's still hard because there's I'm just stretched so, so thin. But back to the initial point, I do not have the physical amount of time in the day to do 17 hours. So I have to work a bit smarter. I still wake up at 4.30 in the morning every day and I'm working by 4.45 or 5 
because it's two hours before my baby wakes up and I want to spend an hour with my kid. And that works for me. Like it might not work for other people, but that is probably the biggest change is figuring out how to manage time in a different phase of life, usually which comes back to what you're an expert at, which is leverage, which means like figuring out how to use your time efficiently, given the gifts you have. Yeah. I mean, do you, you approach that differently a little bit as a person? Do you think about how leverage fits into structuring your company any differently the second time around? What do you mean by structuring the company? I mean, do you have, um, are, are you thinking more in terms of like building a small, really high powered team, hiring more slowly, hiring less people, or maybe relying more on, you know, vendors like Stripe, oh. you use Twilio for the first one, Stripe on the second one, like, you know, do you think about the pros and cons of each decision as a as a founder and company builder differently, having been through, you know, the, the full cycle with Remind already? I try, but I don't want to sound like some guru who's figured it all out that's gonna spot off a bunch of things that are sort of like philosophical because I'm not I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect like that. Let me think. I don't know if I actually have a good answer for this. I don't think I have a good answer. Are you, are you hiring differently? Yeah, well, we're hiring super differently. Yeah, so I guess that's one. We're 100% remote, fully distributed. Entire product and engineering team is in South America. Technically, they're 1099 contractors, but they're full-time employees. They have equity ownership in the company, and they're wonderful. Like We feel really strong about it. And it's, it's kind of crazy. We've been working with some of them for over a year and a half, and I feel like they're close friends that I physically never met face-to-face. And so we definitely feel strong about the all-remote thing, U.S. time zone. That's one. The other thing, I guess I I do have an answer for this. The other thing is the way I think about company is like building a very efficient engine. And the first part of the company with David and I was building a customer development engine and inputs to that engine was our Notion CRM and figuring out how to ask questions and what the questions are and how we ask them and who we talk to. Once that started working, the second engine was figuring out how to build it efficiently. And the input to that is the right team and the right people. And then we have to scale that engine, both the the sort of like the technology we use, Stripe, and, and all the different inputs. And then, you know, there's a different part, which is like, okay, now that we are in the customer acquisition engine, how do we build that engine? And we're figuring that out right now. And I never sort of had that framing at Remind. It was more so, holy shit, we're growing really quickly. Don't like never have control, constantly looking behind my, like, oh my God, I'm not thinking about fast enough. And this one's a, a bit more methodical. Like we take more time to make decisions that end up saving us time in the long run. And I think that's because we're just a bit more experienced. Yeah, that that's a really interesting, I mean, remind, I, I think it had a slow burn as you found the problem, but those stories of like, it was like a light switch flipped and you were just like running full sprint for year, five years, maybe yeah. longer. Yeah, just, you were just like the zero to billion happened so, so, so fast. Yeah, when you hit it, you hit it. Let me give context on that because I never understood it. Like you would just hear ABC company has 50 million users or X million users. But when you actually go through it, we hit. And then within like three months, there were points where we're adding two to 300,000 users a day. At our peak in August, there was one point, I think in a single day where we added 425,000 unique users of which a large majority of them retained with like 10 engineers. It was wild. And just to metaphorically conceptualize that, like we went to Michigan State, I went to like three football games and I think that they can support 80,000 people in the stadium. And so it was 10 stadiums 
of human beings signing up on our our site. And you should Google, by the way, if you Google Remind 101 homepage, there's a picture, like a stick figure I drew of like a person sending a mail to another person, this janky thing. It's just wild. And it's a very fortunate problem to have, but like the, the growth was just crazy. We didn't have any time to... Yeah, the, the, I mean, I imagine now it's, it's a little bit of a luxury to kind of be able to think in that high leverage way instead of just like whole, like everything's on fire. It's good fire. It's positive, but like, oh my God, you can't possibly work hard enough or fast enough to keep up with all these things and just keep the servers from falling over. Yeah. And of course, I mean, it would, it would kind of be nice if it were that, but it's just a problem. <laughs> We've been working on this for two and a half or three years. And we're now at this point, we're now at the point where we're starting to get the servers on fire and it's starting to grow in a really healthy way. It's just a different business. It's just a, a totally different business than Remind. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I mean, for all of the parallels that there are, I don't know, it's been very interesting to hear kind of some of the nuances because from the outside, it's kind of like, oh, similar audience, similar distribution, like, but the differences between kind of the nodes and the depth versus breadth and the precision of the initial sort of product is, is really interesting. This is one of my favorite questions. It doesn't always work, but it's, a, it's an interesting one if it does. What are the most common like heuristics or mental models or principles that you use to sort of make decisions like rules of thumb? And I can give you examples if that's helpful. Yeah, give me one example. Okay, so potentially at Remind, the th like uh, Jeff Bezos said a thing for like each year or season of the company had like a principle that was like one was get big fast. Like every decision that you make should be geared towards like adding more users or getting more volume through the platform. And then another season of the company was getting our house in order. It's like, hey, we're, we're going to enter a chapter of rapid scalability. You know, for me personally, it is often like it, it leverage personally. So now I'm thinking through like, you know, what is the what is the highest value use of my time or what are the things only I can do? Or those are kind of like things I keep coming back to that are principles for how I make a decision. And I wonder maybe what those are for you that are top of mind, at, at least at this point in your company. Yeah, I mean, so I love the concept of having a single thing. I don't know if I actually have a principle for it though. I mean, for me with Omela, the number one problem is acquiring customers. That's it. Like we have eliminated every other threat. And so we just need to acquire them. And so my entire time and thinking is spent on acquiring customers because when they come, they retain, we have a positive business model with clear unit economics, all that. I don't think this framework necessarily applies to decision-making, but it's really important. Like when we started Magic K-12, Jeff Ralston, I mentioned this in the beginning, he said to me, talk to customers a lot. And I, I don't know if he told me this or like I kind of extrapolated this framework, but talk to customers, solve a problem and build a simple product to solve that problem and just rinse and repeat. And it's so simple, but like that is what we run our, that's our, if there was, if you stripped away everything we've learned over the last 15 years, all the frameworks and customers and growth and employees, yada, yada, that's really at the core of what we do. Like we try to make things really simple and we know that they're simple because we understand the problem because we talk to customers. That's it. John Doerr, uh, who is, you know, one of the great investors from Kleiner Perkins was an early investor in Remind. And I think he invested in Remind for two reasons. One is because we were just growing extremely fast. And the second thing is because when he visited our little office on, God, Brannon, was it Brannon? I don't even remember the street in Soma. It was so long ago. I don't even know if Brandon is a street. You know, in in Soma, 
Brandon's definitely a street. I think I've been to that office. I think you're yeah. right on Brandon. It's this little, it was, we had like a little bed in the upstairs where like one of our employees would sleep when they came in from out of town. Anyway, we had a sheet of paper above the bathroom, like the mirror. So whenever you use the bathroom, no matter which way you were looking, it said, what is our goal for week? WAT, which was weekly active teachers. That was our goal. And that was it. And there's a single number on it. And every week we updated it and it was everywhere. And he loved it. Um, now we loved it too, because we were so focused. So I, I just, uh, to relate to the idea of like a single goal, it was super helpful. Anytime, and I've, I've made this mistake that we set multiple goals for the company, no matter the size, we almost always failed. Very interesting. I, I remember having similar challenges. It's right. We were kind of like, for a while when we're a small team, it's kind of like, we can afford to only have one goal at a time. And as we added to the team and added to the complexity of the business model, we kind of had this feeling like, okay, now we have to be able to do multiple things at once. And I don't ever feel like we actually reached that stage. And it's interesting to hear, I mean, you, you built a much, much, much bigger company and organization and still even at you know, some scale, you still didn't really handle multiple objectives at the same time. Well, yeah, but just, just so we're like brutally honest here, I don't actually think I succeeded at doing multiple things. Well, when we brought in very senior experience management into our mind, they did like, they not only grew the base, but they also grew the business model. And I learned a lot from it. It was very hard for me, but they did. And so it's definitely possible. I think though, uh, again, like the takeaway framing is, especially when you're small, you have such a small team and you can't do a lot at once. It's just like really, really focus on one specific thing. And for us right now, that's customer acquisition. Yeah. In your experience at the incubator or, or mentoring other companies, I know you, you, know, you invest in, in companies as well now. Do you find it like sad or funny or whatever? Like there's this very simple framework that has worked for you throughout your career that is, you know, talk to the customers, understand the problem, build something simple. I probably have those three points wrong, actually, now that I say them out loud. Did I get them right? Yeah, it's talk to customers, solve a problem, and build a simple product, but it's fine. Okay, okay. And like, do you find people just not doing that and totally like trying to over, like add complexity or, you know, skip to level five? And do, do, do you watch people fail by overthinking it rather than just like following the simple playbook? No, I don't. Most of the companies, so I've probably invested in like 30 plus or minus companies, mostly through funds, but most of them, I just really like the entrepreneurs and the problem they're solving. And I just get out of their way and anything they need, I help them. They usually happen to be very customer focused and like they have somewhat of a line mentality, but even if they don't, I'm not going to put my, my way. I'm not going to say like, oh, you have to do it my way. Cause there's just two ways to skin a cat. Like one of my other friends who started a, a company he has hardly talked to any customers and he has like a very healthy, engaged, growing user base. And he's more of a technologist and he just built this thing and solved it. And he's good at marketing and it's working. So like, there's just, there's multiple ways to do it. This is just my way. Where would you like to see Omela grow over the next, you know, five, five, 10 years? Five to 10 years is a long time horizon. Let me, let me do a reverse order. The first order of business is get to break even a profitability because we want to control our own destiny and grow really quickly to server market. Longer term, if we zoom out, remember we said that Square Investor presentation, these millions of small organizations, we really want to become, and I, and I don't want to overuse this term, but like the operating system for them. Like we, we think it's really valuable to help them focus on what they're gifted at, which is leading, teaching, coaching, preaching. Like We want to help them do that and use very simple software to abstract away all this 
crap. That's where I see it. Hopefully, we won't have hundreds of employees. We have a small team of 10 right now. I mean, it's going to be more than that by then. But I don't think that more people equates to higher productivity or revenue or engagement. How do you ensure that you can keep a, a small sort of high performance team ver- versus solving problems with headcount? Like as a, as a company builder, how do you set yourself up for that future? Almost all of it comes down to the leader you hire. And I'm sorry mm. if you hear that in the background, I have an upset baby crying. If you can hear that, I apologize. Poor, Poor Ellis. Yeah, uh, and we have a sick baby. He has a fever, but he'll be fine. So I think I think the answer is leverage through the best people. It's like if you hire the people who are really really good and get out of their way, then like they will somehow solve the problem. And, and you have to be able to get out of their way. Like I think we're actually pretty. My brother and I were pretty good at that. Like we find people who are domain experts that have aligned values and move. And for at least o- Omela, very aligned that more people don't equate to higher productivity, revenue, engagement. It's like we, we want to build this in a long-term profitable way. We obviously need people. They're like the engine that powers this bigger engine in this company, but we don't have to hire hundreds of people, at least yet, unless this machine is just ripping, which we're, we're not there yet. Yeah. Okay. As we kind of wind down a little bit, I, I want to return from the from the end to the, the fundamental skill that you have of talking to customers, bringing that back. Like you said, you talked to 2,000 people, um, organizations throughout Omela. How does that, you know, as you took the product back to them in succession, how many of those sort of become customers, become evangelists, become, you know, marketers for you? What does that process feel like? Yeah, a few of them have become customers. A lot of them have become evangelists. And some of them I haven't even contacted again because we're not ready. That part's hard. Like I want to pull the trigger and go, but there's still a few more things that we have to put in place. Now, that doesn't mean we're waiting. Like I, I, who is it? Reed Hoffman who says like, if you're not embarrassed by your first product, then you're not shipping it. We've shipped it. We have customers. GMV is growing. Revenue is growing. Like I would say that we have product user fit. But there are still a few important puzzle pieces that we aren't ready to scale yet until the core engine is working. And there's a few more things that we have to put in place. And that's going to be happening very soon over the next, I don't know, six six months plus or minus. But we want to put those pieces in place before we really start to unleash it's interesting to know, sort of see which customers have their problem fully solved at which, you know, set of features or set of completion. Like I've been using Omela for a long time and mm-hmm. seen sort of the platform evolve. And I know you've gone through really interesting kind of like, okay, now we have to like trash the MVP platform and re- rebuild. Like h- how are those decisions where you're like, all right, now it's, it is now the right time to go from V1 to V2. And what are the inputs to that decision? I mean, we ripped on our first product and they had to start from scratch, which was brutal, but Sometimes you have to move slow to move fast. And we did that for a bunch of reasons, which are irrelevant to this podcast, but it was very hard to do that. How did, like, it was a question when we decided to do that or how we decided to do that? How, how did you decide? Oh, based on talking to a bunch of customers, having a bunch of data, looking at usage metrics, and then looking at the customers that we've talked to who have not signed up. And then we have these terms internally, which is, are they a blocker, a need, or a want? And we looked at trends for features that, blocked customers and we focused on just those and customers that mattered by the way we did the whole sean ellis survey and there's some customers that don't matter and what we found just for our company is that the more money an organization collects the bigger the problem they have and the the more that they need and the more features they need and we're kind of getting to the point now where we're pretty pretty feature pretty robust with the features that we have 
I mean, that's a great, that's a great alignment to have. The bigger the customer, the bigger the problem, and the more they need you. That's, that's exactly the way you'd want it to go. Yeah, makes total sense. Awesome. Well, I'm very excited to see this thing evolve. I think uh, Omel is a beautiful product and brand, and I love the problem that you're solving. And I don't know I, it, the, the how mission driven you are, and how and the specific mission that you've chose. I you know I believe everybody's got the right to to pick their own mission and should. And you know, founder market fit is incredibly important. But it's just it's very it's energizing to watch you sort of apply yourself fully to this problem because it means so much to you and you and you have the skills and conviction to like go solve this problem and run through it and i feel like you're in your element building this company and it's really exciting to watch and be a part of thank you i would agree and i appreciate you having me on here thank you so much i i admire you and your your skill and your work and your work ethic and always have and it's it is a pleasure to have you here and share some of what i've learned from you over 10 plus 15 years of, of friendship now and bring it to the world and get to get to shine a light on you. It's a, it's a, a pleasure to be able to do it. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you like this episode, you will probably also like my episode with Shane Mack, another friend and founder who talks in frameworks and from the trenches of being a CEO and creating companies out of nothing. Another is Kevin Espiritu, both great founders, great insights, interesting businesses. I think you'll learn a lot from both of those. You can support the show by checking out the Founders Podcast at founderspodcast.com or investing with me and my partners through Rolling Fund. Links to both are in the show notes. For a free way to support the show, please, please leave a quick review or text this episode to a friend you think would enjoy it. Those are the best two ways to help this show grow, help us reach more people, grow the community, and get bigger guests, which I would love to share with you. Thank you for listening. Have a great one. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.